He wanted to build a car that he could that could also use as a racing car. I mean, he did like racing. That first three-litre Bentley in the end of 1919 was it, it, it came fully formed like out of his out of his own mind and his personality. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening from places like Hackettstown, New Jersey, Crosby, Texas, Burlingame, California, Freising, Germany, Agadir, Morocco, and Roa de Duero, Spain. Today, I bring you a story that helped define a century of motorsport. It's a story I've wanted to tell for quite a while, but it deserved just the right moment, so it's been several years in the making. And timing can mean everything, right? And that was certainly true when it comes to the life and career of the central figure in our tale. Walter Owen Bentley was born in 1888, when the motor car was little more than a spindly, sputtering wagon, not even capable of conquering a gentle hill without the passengers pushing the contraption along. By the time he was 40, Bentley had created a world-class high-performance machine that vanquished all others in the most grueling contest yet devised the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And now here we sit today, 100 years since the first race in that little French countryside town, and when you hear the name Le Mans, you might think of a certain car or a certain driver or a particular year of the race, but just imagine being present at the beginning of that history. W.O. Bentley was there and his machine was ready. Like I said, timing. And my guest today has written a marvelous account of this tale. And even though a century and more has passed, He's helped to bring it to life in the mind's eye. Peter Grimsdale is the author of Racing in the Dark, When the Bentley Boys Conquered Le Mans. Peter's had a long and successful career in television and as a writer of thrillers, but he's got a way with nonfiction as well. Racing in the Dark is a wonderful book, and I think it really does justice to the all-too-fleeting exploits of the original Bentley Motor Car Company. So please visit the links in the show notes and get your hands on a copy of this book. I promise you it's well worth it. All right, well, I hope that sets the scene for you. And I'm going to make this one a two-parter, by the way, just to break things up a bit. So look for part two on Friday, March 10th, and that'll take you into the weekend. It's the origin story of Bentley Motors, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, and so much more. My guest is author Peter Grimsdale, and that's coming up right after this. Hi guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I want to tell you what's new at Model Citizen Diecast. First, there's the 1971 Mario Andretti Ferrari 312B2. It's a Formula One car in 143rd scale, and it's perfect for that shelf in your office. Or how about a pair of 1966 Porsche 906s, both from the Targa Florio and in different liveries, also in 143rd scale. And you can see these and many more special cars at ModelCitizenDieCast.com. Use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout for 10% off your order. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Peter Grimsdale, what a privilege to have you on. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, You know, this is a long time coming. I've been looking forward to this for months and months, and the day has finally come. Of course, this is the 100th anniversary of Le Mans, right, this year? It is indeed. It's coming up. So this is a good moment to be talking about the early days. And every ticket is spoken for. It's first time in the history of the race. It's completely sold out. We're going to get into your book, Racing in the Dark, When the Bentley Boys Conquered Le Mans. It's fascinating. Peter, it is so vivid, and I know that you have a television background, so it's no surprise that there's a cinematic quality to the book. Every scene, I mean, you can can hear the hammers swinging uh, in the garage as they build the first Bentley. You can hear the gears grinding as they round the Arnage corner. It's just fantastic. I think what it has uh, in terms of a story going for it, I mean, as well as that marvelous film Ford versus Ferrari. Um, you might also remember Chariots of Fire, uh, the British uh, feature film. And I, for me, 
this story is Chariots of Fire on Wheels. Peter, how did you get into this in the first place? Because it's a marvelous story, and I think it's fairly well known, but you've managed to find um, new ways of telling it. Well, it goes back a long way, uh, because when I was small, I collected small cars. And in about 1965, Corgi produced a Bentley three-liter with a three on the front, known as old number seven. So inevitably, I was curious about how come this car is called old number seven. It's got a three on the front. Uh, in fact, I also got round about the same time the autobiography of W.O. Bentley, My Life and My Cars, which is a wonderful book. And I read about the White House crash in 1927 and the car that crashed on one Le Mans. And it's one of those kind of creation myths, isn't it? It's one of those great stories. If you wanted to do a book of the 12 greatest races of the 20th century, the 1927 Le Mans would be in there probably. And I wrote a school essay in 1966 um, about it, which I still have. And anyway, spool forward about five decades. I'm at a literary festival talking about my thrillers because I'm a, I write thriller, fiction thrillers, and talking about doing fiction and television. And I was on a panel with four people, uh, my agent, my editor, and a couple of other writers. And the only thing we had, they had in common was they were not interested in cars in the slightest bit. However, this was a kind of outdoor event. And there were all kinds of interesting props around the place. And one of them was a vintage three-liter Bentley. And we were standing having our coffee, and I said, you know, a car just like this in 1927 at Le Mans crashed and then went on to win. And I, I spoke about it for about 30 seconds. And one of them said, wow, that's like Seabiscuit. <laughs> I said, well, I don't know anything about Seabiscuit, but apparently it's a very famous horse. I said, well, maybe. But anyway, I got to the end of my sentence, and they were all kind of holding their cups, kind of like waiting for more. And I thought, ah, this is one of those stories from the depths of automobilia, which translates to a wider public. So I'd, I'd just written my first car book, which is called High Performance. And I was thinking about what I was going to do if I was going to do another car book. So I just thought, huh, yeah, old number seven, maybe that's a thing. And I wrote a page and the publisher said, yeah, we'll have this. Wow. Fantastic. I was so lucky. And it was nice. and then I went, oh my God, because there are some really good, you know, very important books about Bentley that have been written. And, you know, I'm just this interloper coming in out of television or somewhere. You know, what will they make of it? But I thought, well, you know, Simon and Schuster want to do it, so I'll do it. And so it started. The idea was that I would use the the, the 1927 Le Mans as a frame, because as I'm sure uh, most of your listeners know. Uh, you know, this was a race in which there was a five-car pileup. I mean, one of the biggest, I mean, thankfully, nobody was badly hurt at all, amazingly, but there were five cars involved, including all three of the Bentley team. And miraculously, this car, the Sammy Davis managed to reverse out of the pileup, get the car back to the pits, and in the end, won the race. So I thought I'd use the race as a kind of frame for the book and called the book Old Number Seven. Anyway, when I got properly into the story, I realized that I was kind of missing a trick because what happened after 1927 was in some ways even more thrilling because what followed was the hat trick uh, of wins by the, the amazing Wolf Bonato. And I mean, as, a, as an author, as a writer of fiction, I'm really interested in characters. And Wolf Bonato is about the closest Britain ever got to a Jay Gatsby, uh, albeit somewhat more legit, perhaps, than uh, Gatsby. Uh, but he was an incredible larger-than-life character, a diamond heir, a polo player, a cricketer, a boxer, and a guy who wanted to race cars, who bought the company, bailed out Bentley Company, and said, I want to drive at Le Mans. And he did. So I felt in the end, I found myself actually writing the story of the W.O. Bentley era of Bentley, but trying to keep as close as possible 
on the shoulders of the characters involved, the key characters involved, not just the drivers, also the mechanics, because there's an incredible archive of material out there. And it was about basically cherry picking what I thought were the best bits. Well, Wolf Barnado is a fascinating character among um, an amazing cast of characters, which we will get into. Incidentally, I have also read My Life and My Cars by W.O. Bentley. Good. And I was absolutely captivated by it. But, you know, he's he leaves a lot on the table. Mm. In a way, he's a bit reticent. And Yes. You know, he. I think he was truly a man of his times, right? That Edwardian stiff upper lip. You didn't complain. You didn't talk about yourself, right? Yeah, totally. And when you think about what these guys had been through, I mean, I write a lot about the war, the Great War, as we call it. I don't know what you guys call it, but we call it the Great War, the First World War. Each of them had their own very particular war stories. And if you think about it, it Bentley had an extraordinary opportunity because he got to build, design, and build aero engines. But it was an intense time. He just got married before the war. War happens. Off he goes. He barely sees his wife for four years. He comes back. And even before the armistice is being celebrated, she's dead of Spanish flu. You know, and what all these guys had in common, they all had terrible stories. They'd all lost people. They'd lost, they'd lost family through the war. And then along comes Spanish flu. So they didn't really talk about stuff. You know, nobody's, oh, I feel terrible today. It's just like, come on, don't we all just move on? So they went, and also being Brits, you know, they really, really didn't talk about stuff. But also, they were dead set on something to restore themselves after this experience. And, you know, seeking adventure, living life. And I think there was a huge responsibility they carried on their shoulders. So many of their friends had died. So many of their family that died. It's just like, life is really precious. I must live every day to the full. And nowhere is that more profoundly recorded than in Tim Birkin's memoir, Full Throttle. Tim Birkin, another extraordinary 1920s character, you know, another, another heir with loads of money. Uh, he exceptionally wrote really honestly about his need for speed and how really he was trying to replicate the excitement of the war uh, for him. He was very honest about it. He wrote about it in his book, Full Throttle, which is a, a slim volume, a memoir, uh, which he dedicated to all schoolboys. And, uh, and then he died in, in the early 30s, from a, not, not in a crash, but um, from a, a, a burn that he sustained uh, during a race when he touched a, his, his arm touched a uh, very hot exhaust pipe and he, got, I, he went septic and he died. That fact alone, Peter, just illustrates how far we've come and also how fragile things were in the early 20th century. Oh, totally, totally. And then on top of that, you know, the car was still, the motor car was still a very new thing. Um, and in some ways, in Britain, in the 1920s for the motor industry, it was like the dot-com boom. You know, there were, there were I can't remember the exact figures, but the, the, number, of, uh, the number of manufacturers exhibiting at the 1919 auto show in London of them something like two-thirds of them were gone by 1925 Bentley very nearly went under because these guys you know they were learning how to build cars they were learning how to sell them and they were also having to learn about building businesses and one thing that the Bent the Bentley brothers Bentley and his brother were not really that good on was building a business. They built great cars and people love them. But in terms of building a business and making actual money, that was another thing that kind of eluded them. Ettore Bugatti supposedly once called Bentley's the world's fastest lorries, sort of a left-handed compliment, if you like. Yes. And But that was really true, wasn't it? Because W.O., who had come from a family of some means, was 
a 16-year-old apprentice in the locomotive sheds of the Great Northern and Eastern Railway. Yes. Um, he and indeed Henry Royce were both railway apprentices. And it, some of that is expressed in their, in their machines. You know, they, they built big, heavy machines. And they built big engines to make those big, heavy machines go fast. There was no, I mean, Ettore Bugatti is a, is a master of miniaturization. Anyone who's looked at the little Peugeot that he made uh, for, in 1913, it, it's, it, it's like a, a child's car compared to what, what else was being built at the time. And I say that in a, in a complimentary way. That miniaturization was never on Bentley's agenda. And I think an awful lot of it is about the culture that his engineering sprang from. Uh, certainly in terms of size and weight. But there's another important thing that he got out of being a railway apprentice. He knew about what happened to metal when it heated and it shrank and it swelled and so forth. And he knew that different, how different metals behaved in different ways. And although he is not a kind of genius inventor, he's not a Isigodis uh or, you know, one of those legendary Italian engine designers, uh, or certainly not a, you know, any, anybody uh, like, this, like the Citroen guys. Um, his great achievement when he, very, very early on, was to not, he didn't invent the idea of the, alum, the aluminum, or aluminum as we say, piston, but he, uh, he took up the idea and used it and made it work. And actually, that had quite a dramatic effect on the motor car engine uh, and indeed the aero engine, too, because when I'm talking about uh, 1911, 1912. The aluminum piston enabled engines to rev that much faster. And there's a wonderfully counterintuitive thing about the aluminum piston because you think, well, aluminum melts at a lower temperature than iron or steel. So how's that going to work? What Bentley knew was that aluminum conducted heat faster, let go of heat faster than steel or iron. So it didn't matter if it got very hot because it was getting rid of the heat. So you could spin it at that higher rate because the, high, the faster you spin an engine, the hotter it can get. So that was a kind of wonderful thing that he did uh, along the way. And, he, and that was still when he was very young and he wasn't even making cars. He was selling other people's cars at the time he came up with that. Right. So as a man who was born in 1888, he straddled the steam era and the internal combustion era. Totally. And he took lessons from both. He was, he had learned the old trade and then began to innovate in, in the new era, the aluminum piston. So this is an interesting story. He was racing a French car called a DFP, right? Yes. And he visited their factory and noticed what was ostensibly a paperweight on this executive's desk. Mm -hmm. And it was an aluminum piston, but it was kind of just a trinket for them. They didn't, it wasn't a serious engineering effort. And, and that was the spark, right? Yes. Yes. Extraordinary. But to go back to his transit, Bentley transitioned from uh, steam engines to motor cars in kind of interesting way, because as a child growing up in the 1890s, I mean, cars were barely on the scene, and those that were were noisy, smelly, you know, a chaos of fumes and smoke, and you know, the, the pneumatic tire had barely come along. You know, it's just like, ugh. Whereas you could go and stand at the bridge of one of the lines, the fast railway lines coming out of London, and see steam engines powering up towards Scotland. Fantastic. But what happened was he grew up in North London, in St. John's Wood. But when he became a railway apprentice, he had to go up north to Doncaster, which is getting on for 200 miles. And his brothers, who ha he had elder brothers, they bought motorcycles. And Bentley thought, actually, a motorcycle would be quite useful for me for commuting from the, the lodgings where he lived to, to the works, because you had to be there at something like, quarter to six in the morning so he got a little motorbike and then he thought ah oh, maybe i could ride this thing home one weekend so he rode it all the way home and really 
that was kind of it. He just thought, you know what? There's incredible freedom to be had out of this machine. So I think he was of that generation who, you know, were, were excited by the whole industrial revolution, excited by the speed of trains and the railway network and all that kind of thing. But basically you had to, you had to kind of go when the timetable set, you know, and the, the possibilities of the motorcycle and the motor car in terms of personal freedom, he, he got it very early on, just like everybody else. But, you know, of, of, of the of the first the first generation of automotive pioneers. But it was suddenly one day he woke up and he was like fallen out of love with the steam engine and the railways. And he came home and said, I'm not going on with this apprentice apprenticeship that you'd so sort of grudgingly let me go and do. And I'm going to sell cars. <laughs> Peter, I think it might be worth mentioning that there was even legislation in Britain that uh, punished any road-going vehicles. And the the Red Flag Act is what I'm referring to. And largely it was sort of promoted by the railway industry, right? They wanted to protect their bottom line. Yeah, there was a, there was a, a broad coalition of automobile haters. Um, whether in fact the, the railroad interests were even had the vision to realize the threat, I'm not even sure about that. But certainly... The, the the status quo, the establishment in in high places didn't really like the idea. I think it was seen as a bit subversive. People just being able to get in get in the machine and drive it however the hell they liked, wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted. It was a bit radical for them. And indeed, it's true that Britain, uh, more than any other European country, really limited the motor car to start with, with this Red Flag Act. This had been introduced... Um, even before the, before the motor car, this was to stop steam vehicles traveling on the roads at any kind of speed. And a man carrying a red flag had to walk in front of the vehicle. Meanwhile, the French, who after all are the great, you know, the, German, the Germans pretty much invented the motor car, but it was the French who developed it as a viable machine that could be sold in numbers. And they were streaking away. And, you know, by the year 1900, the French were way ahead, way ahead now, also say, of the Americans. At that point, they were the world's, by far, the world's biggest manufacturer of motor cars. They just streaked ahead. Yeah, the French sort of made love to the motor car at the first opportunity. They certainly did. And, you know, one of the reasons is we forget about this sometimes, but France is a big country with a lot of open space. And well, going back to Napoleon, you know, they had a pretty good road network. Uh, so even if you had a car in Britain, you know, there wasn't really anywhere you could go fast. Uh, the road surfaces weren't up to it. There was always a bend or a hill coming. So it wasn't the, the, the environment was not conducive for motoring or certainly fast motoring. But nevertheless, W.O. begins to race in hill climbs and so forth. And yes. By 1914, he's had a fairly successful stint in the taxi cab industry of all places. Yes. And he's got the, the engineering know-how that he gathered from his apprenticeship at the railroad. And he gets married in 1914. And life seems to be, you know, the future is bright. It certainly is. And then in July, Britain is at war with Germany. Astonishing, yes. For the first time, Britain is involved in a European war. First time in decades. People were amazed, you know, that just, oh goodness, how did this happen? Yes. And of course, W.O., like so many young men, he did his bit, right? He joined up. He was a reserve lieutenant in the Royal Navy. And early on, he sort of convinced them that, hang on, these aircraft engines, we're, we're having trouble with these aircraft engines, these French Clerget engines. And Great Britain hadn't really yet built its own aero engine industry. Not at all. Well, no, you know, air, the aircraft industry, well, anywhere in the world was pretty, it was very early days. It was still in a very uh, experimental stage. And you know, one of the great pioneers of uh, flying in Britain was uh, Charles Stuart Rolls, Rolls of Rolls-Royce. But he was killed in a plane crash in 1910. He's one of the first 
first fatalities from the air. And it was striking that not long after that, the Rolls-Royce uh, board uh, decided that they wouldn't be involved in any more of this aeronautic business. And so when, when the First World War broke out, I mean, Britain was completely unprepared for any kind of air. I mean, no one knew what a war in the air would look like. And the first airplanes that were used in war were for reconnaissance because there is nothing better than being able to see over the hill, see over the horizon. And, and that, was, that was the beginning of it all. So, in fact, the government basically said to companies, said to Rolls-Royce, you will have to manufacture airplane engines. And they said, we'll, give you, we'll, we'll buy a license for Renault engines. So Rolls-Royce were building Renault engines to start with. Um, and what Bentley did was very canny, really. He went to see uh, somebody in the war administration uh, who was on the, on the technical side and said, look, I have this aluminum piston. I think it could really help. And the guy on the other side of the table realized, well, a young, uh, like, like Bentley, relatively young at the time, saw what he was on about and said, yes, you must take this around. You must go and see Rolls-Royce with this thing. And indeed, the, the aluminum piston was taken up uh, by Rolls-Royce and by other uh, engine makers that started to come. But, but Bentley was desperate to, well, first of all, he was responsible for trying to upgrade engines. Um, and some of these were built under license. And there were all kinds of bureaucratic problems with trying to kind of alter something that had been built under license it was a nightmare. And for him, the solution was to design and build his own engine, which he was encouraged to do and indeed did do. So by the end of the First World War, most of Britain's best new fighter biplanes were Bentley powered. And that was, that was quite a thing. But I think one of the things, there were many things that he got out of that experience. And my God, he worked hard through those years. But I think you know, for motor builders and, and car designers of the time, they all knew that, you know, if something went wrong with a car, which it often did, you just pulled to the side of the road and started sorting it out with your chauffeur if you had one or a blacksmith who might be down the road. But when an engine stopped working in the sky and Bentley witnessed this firsthand, that was the end. That was the end. So for him, reliability was fundamentally important. He really wanted to design reliability into his engines. And that's possibly why he wasn't that interested in miniaturization, you know, because once you make everything smaller and lighter, it's more likely to break. <laughs> and so for him, it was all about building something that would go all day. In the book, you tell a very interesting story about Bentley's visit to an aerodrome in France and getting strafed by one of the Germans, not just any German, right? Yes. He, legend has it, that uh, while at one of the airfields, and this is another great feature of Bentley, he didn't sit in a drawing office designing engines. He went to the airfield and talked, not just to the pilots, but talked to the mechanics. And, and that was a great thing, which throughout his life uh, got him a long way. But he could, despite being, you know, rather well-heeled public schoolboy, you know, he'd been through a railway apprenticeship, and the class system was no barrier for him. He could talk to everybody he wanted to, and people respected him because he did that. He bothered to, and he he could talk to people on their level. So he was talking to the aircraft fitters one day at uh, this uh, airfield near Dunkirk on the on the on the French coast, and they were strafed by no less than. Uh, Baron Richterfen, the Red Baron himself, he and his squadron strafed the airfield. And there was nothing else to do but jump in the nearest canal for cover. And indeed, it was while standing in his canal, neck up, that he met the guy who was going to help him build his first car engine, who was one of the RAF fitters. And ironically, later in the war, it was a Bentley engine that was responsible for the death of Richthofen. Yes, not that it brought Bentley any satisfaction to really know that, but indeed it is probably the case that the plane that shot down Richterfen was Bentley powered. A sop with camel. Mm -hmm. made, <laughs> made famous by peanuts, of course. <laughs> 
So the end of the war, a sense of relief that it's finally all over? Yes, a sense of relief that it was all over. But it, there was no sense of victory. You know, it, was, it was basically a, they decided to stop. You know, the, the Germans realized they probably weren't going to win this, even though they'd had quite a successful offensive earlier in the year. And so it, it ended. But there was no great, I mean, there, there, were, there were parades, but it was not like VE Day or VJ Day. I think they were all, I mean, to say they were all shell-shocked is probably a rather bad pun, but I think everybody was literally shell-shocked by the war because, you know, these young men, particularly the, the, the Bentley fraternity, these were all young Edwardian men who had been to public school and were quite affluent, their family had means, and there was a kind of certainty with which they entered the world. They would go forward and they would accomplish and be successful and enjoy a good life. And suddenly they were thrown into this cauldron, a war the like of which had never been seen before, except possibly towards the end of the American Civil War, where there was so much uh, weaponry that troops had to dig down to get out of its way. But nothing like this. War on an unimaginable, mechanized industrial scale. And... They had to come back and find something. Something good had to come out of this. And one was for a, you know, a long period of time. People said, well, that's it. I mean, a lot of people were very, very anti-war for a long period of time. And even well into the 1930s, the, the idea of going back into war was just like never again, never again. What I think is really interesting about what happened to their mindsets is before the war, and it's very striking in the first Grand Prix in Europe, they were kind of nationalistic gladiatorial competitions between, particularly between France and Germany. After the war, there was a whole different attitude amongst the racing fraternity. And it was more about doing things together. There was much more of a collaborative sense of doing something that was worthwhile, that they'd all benefit from. Would it be fair to say the war really kind of shook the British Empire to its roots? Well, it, it did and it didn't, because I think the writing had been on the wall for the British Empire, you know, from sometime towards the end of the 19th century. Um, but I think, you know, the, the British Empire really kind of staggered on for a good few more decades. And it wasn't really until the end of the Second World War, you know, where, you know, by the end of the Second World War, America very much was the superior power. There was no question about that. And the push towards, you know, decommissioning the empire became a very strong and necessary one, even though the British themselves or some people within the British establishment had a hard time grappling with that. Right. And I guess I mentioned that, Peter, because the gilded edges of king and country have sort of worn by 1918. One of the things that was very striking is that the attrition amongst the kind of upper-class, private school-educated young men was much higher than the working-class conscripts. I mean, many of these, these young men of Bentley's, you know, and kind, of, kind of people contemporaries of Bentley's, at their, Bentley and co. at their schools, you know, they led from the front, they were in the trenches, and they were often the first to be cut down. And, and in many ways, the First World War cleaned out large numbers of the young ruling class and did set in train a process whereby Britain moved from being uh, a very, very top-down country to a more, uh, towards being a more egalitarian, more democratic country. And meanwhile, Bentley returns home only to have his wife die of the Spanish flu and he throws himself into his work. That's, that's all he's got. Yes, um, I mean, he he obviously was a workaholic, complete and totally dedicated to his work. And I think the loss of his wife just meant he he filled the hours with with work and all he wanted to do. I mean, he his baby <laughs> was his first car, which was was he completed it in a year from scratch in a year. By the end of 1919, he had a car on the road quite an extraordinary achievement. I mean, 
I think, you know, he just, like so many of that generation, they pushed their grief aside. And in, in, in many ways, that was the, the best thing he could do was just fill his hours with his car. And it was absolutely his. I mean, he was very good at getting people to help him do things. He was very good, much better than a lot of other uh, uh, you know, autocrats, as I call them, you know, of that era. He, he was very, very good at finding the right people and getting the best out of them. But that car, that first nine, the first three-liter Bentley in the end of 1919, was it, it, it came fully formed like out of his out of his own mind and his personality. You quote W.O. in the book. His vision was a fast car, a good car, the best in its class that could be driven hard without minding. Mm. He had a lovely turn of phrase. And what's interesting about that quote is that he said it, you know, around about 1918, when you know, there wasn't really anywhere in Britain that you could drive like that anyway. You know, he, he had a vision and he had a vision for a car that would, you know, I think probably the experience of being in France during the war and getting a sense, because I mean, nobody traveled back then, you know, he, he, he'd never been out of Britain, I think, before, before the, the, the war, but realizing the sort of scale of France, which after all was the place where the motor car had really taken off, uh, inspired him to build something that could indeed cross continents. He wanted to build a car that he could that could also use as a racing car. I mean, he did like racing. You know, when he was a car salesman selling the French cars before the First World War, he wanted to go in the TT. Uh, he wanted to be in the TT, and he, and and one of the first things he did with those cars when they when he started selling them in in Britain was to kind of take the mudguns off and see how fast he could go around Brooklands. You know, because Brooklands was this extraordinary kind of it was the first kind of speed bowl in a way. It wasn't shaped like a kind of symmetrical bowl, but it had you know banking and everything, and it was huge. And that was the place to go and see how fast he could go. So I mean, racing was absolutely in his blood. Um, he obviously saw racing as a, as a means of you know improving, you know, testing and perfecting his engineering. But he was really into racing. There's no question about it. And so what he wanted to build was a road car that would work for people you know, as, as a day-to-day -day road car, but also work on the track and be competitive on the track. And it's kind of interesting that at the time, uh, even before the war, the, the leading racing cars of the time, uh, the Mercedes and uh, Peugeot uh, and Vauxhall and various others, were all going to twin cam, twin cam engines. And you know, one of the reasons why Bentley didn't want to go that way is they were still kind of noisy, you know? So he wanted to build refinement into his cars. So whereas, you know, people like Bugatti didn't really care about that side of it, um, he was obviously thinking about domesticating the car. So he did this very cunning thing, building a car that, that you know, people could use around town, society folk could use around town, but also that would that would win races and go very fast because there wasn't really anywhere to go fast. Not really. Certainly not in Britain. Not really, except on at Brooklyn's on a track. A wonderful story you tell in the book is that this need for speed sort of infects some of the folks at Rolls Royce and much to the displeasure of Claude Johnson, who's known as the hyphen in Rolls Royce, right? The, he's the managing director, I guess. Yes. So Henry Royce was a man who disapproved of competition, really. Um, he was all about silence and refinement. And also, as you know, a man of a certain age, he was older. He, he, he was a lot older than Bentley. And he, he's a, he is a very interesting story because he's an entirely self-made man. He, he had nothing going for him. He was very poor as a child and completely self-made, more like an American really, in that sense, than, than a Brit, because it was very hard to be self-made in Britain back then. But Rolls-Royce, Roll, Henry Royce, who ruled that company uh, until he died in the early 30s, he completely banned any kind of competition. We're not doing any of that. He felt it would lower the tone of what they were doing. But of course, 
what happened, two things happened. One was that the, the younger apprentices, people who'd come through the war, who'd, who'd been in the war, they, they really wanted to go faster. <laughs> and there was, oh, there was this push from underneath the engineers, and oh, it would be really great to try and make something go faster. But it, it, it never really happened. But what was quietly happening, of course, was at the Rolls-Royces um, found themselves in competition with Bentley. Because what, what happened with the Bentley cars, and, and WO kind of disapproved of this when people started putting sedan bodies, saloon bodies on their cars. He was horrified when people started doing this. But this was because these cars were being tootled around London by society people. You know, and they wanted they wanted some shelter, <laughs> and and by the way, um, you know, closed bodies back then, uh, until Charles Wayman came along, uh, were horrible things. They were noisy. They were they, they were like kind of they were like echo chambers, you know, uh, and but also they were very squeaky because of the wooden joints over those rough roads. It was a nightmare. Yeah, the the bodies at the time were still very much in the carriage era. Totally, totally. It was it was exactly how they had been built fifty years before for carriages, and indeed carriages were still being built at that time. Let's not forget. But yeah, it was it, totally. It was it took the the experience of the airplane in the First World War to gradually filter down, percolate down into the into the motor car to kind of help solve some of those problems. But what happened was a, a kind of rivalry that developed. Rolls Royce would ne- would never have admitted. Uh, to to having any rivals, not really. I mean, they were above all that, <laughs> um, certainly in Britain anyway. Um, but actually what Bentley was doing as his cars got bigger and faster was that, and more refined, he was actually head on, in, by the end of the 1920s, he was head on in competition on the road with Rolls-Royce. You quote Claude Johnson in the book as having said, the serpent of speed has entered into this company and is likely to poison its existence. Yes, it's extraordinary. Where It's a wonderful quote. And you have to kind of unpack that. Where is this coming from? It shows very well the contrast in cultures at the two companies. Bentley didn't set his sights on trying to beat Rolls-Royce. He thought he was doing something quite different, really, because he was terribly focused on racing. But the fact was, Bentley's bigger cars, his six liters and then eight liter car, were more than a match for Rolls Royce and really had, really had them worried because not only was Bentley producing fast, big cars, but they too were very refined, very capable. And there were lots of things that probably, if Royce wasn't so arrogant, he could have learned from Bentley. Peter, in 1922, a Bentley was entered at the Indianapolis 500, and W.O. was n- not quite sure about all this all of a sudden, even though he wanted to compete, right? He, he just wasn't sure. I have no idea why they did this. He must have been talked into it by somebody because he never tried to sell cars in America. He hadn't even been there. Uh, I mean, let's not forget, Rolls-Royce did try and set up a satellite business in Springfield. Uh, which didn't kind of work out, but at least they they you know they tried to get to grips with what, after all, was going to become the the biggest car market for uh, most of the first half of the twentieth century. But Bentley had no attention there. I don't know why they went there, and and pretty much they they literally they the packing case arrived at Indianapolis. They unwrapped it, put it out on the road, and gone on the race. And I mean, to their credit, they finished. I think they became they came something like tenth, which is in, in itself an extraordinary achievement. What they were doing there, I have no idea. But then the next year, nineteen twenty three, a guy named John Duff sort of shows up on W.O.'s doorstep, and he's this Canadian cowboy. You know, he volunteered for the war and you know saw action at Ypres, and he was a London car dealer, and he'd raced at Brooklands and. So he shows up at Bentley and he says, you know, the French are doing this new race. It's quite extraordinary. Duff comes in one day and says, there's, this, there's, a, there's a race in, in France. It's 24 hours long. I want to go and do this race. And Bentley is horrified. He says, racing in the dark? It's complete madness. <laughs> no one will survive. Anyway, Duff being Duff, who's just an adventurer, um, said, well, I'm going anyway. So whether you like it or not, I'm taking my car and I'm going. 
So Bentley kind of grudgingly, okay, well, he's going, so we'll lend him a couple of mechanics, you know, help him along and, you know, but really didn't want to know about it. Anyway, come the Friday, Duff has set off with with his co-driver and a couple of mechanics in the back and they've driven down to Le Mans and Bentley's just going, oh, I don't know, this isn't right, doesn't feel right. And at the last minute, he decides to get the train and the boat and arrives in Le Mans somewhat frazzled after an awful car, uh, uh, train journey uh, just before the start of the race. And he, I mean, to his great credit, Bentley looks at this thing and thinks, this is a terrible idea. But within hours, he says, I was completely hooked. And by the end of the race, Bentley was just totally in love with Le Mans. And for him, from then on, it was the most important race in the world. Give people a sense, Peter, of the circuit itself, because first of all, Le Mans is famous for using public roads as as the circuit. Uh, totally. So motor racing in Europe, it was all on the roads to start with. Uh, there, there were no tracks as such. And motor racing had started with people driving from one city to another and see if they could get there. And then driving from one city to another and see who could get there first. And gradually, this whole thing escalated until 1903, you have a race from Paris to Madrid. And such was the carnage that the French government called the race off halfway through and decreed that all the cars had to be drawn by horse to the nearest station and taken back uh, because there have been so many casualties. I mean, to this day, no one really knows how many people died during this race. Uh, so for, that kind of did for these point-to-point road races. So what the what then you have is race organizers going, okay, what we'll do is we'll get a, like a triangle of roads, you know, 60 miles, something like that. And we can kind of control that a bit better. You know, maybe we can close it off, ask people not to take their horses and carts on it for a, a day. You know, maybe that'll work. And one of the first of these closed road circuits uh, was for the very first French Grand Prix, which was just outside Le Mans in 1906. And that kind of became a thing. And from then on, you know, races all over Europe were basically closed roads. And I believe this was happening in, in, in the US as well. Uh, and it made good sense. And it was a bit, a bit more policeable. Um, it gradually, people thought, you know, actually, it'd be even better if we could make them a bit smaller, a bit smaller. So what happened in the early 20s was the organizers some of these guys had organized the original French Grand Prix at Le Mans. They, they developed a, a set, not exactly a triangle, a circle, but a circuit, but it was between 11 and 13 miles. But basically what it was, was a, it, it hooked up about five or six villages. Public roads closed off, anvil-shaped, but the, the USP really was this idea of driving through the night. Because what these guys were all about was endurance. It was a race of endurance. In fact, they didn't really sell it as a race. The idea was to see if cars could make it through 24 hours. And we will give a prize to the one that gets the furthest. It was kind of like that. That was the initial initiative. And and the racing in the dark, the racing at night, the idea of that was car electrics really needed to improve. You know, lighting needed to improve. So what better than to set a challenge? But the other thing that was really interesting about Le Mans was it had to be production cars. And it was really the first time that this stipulation was really taken taken seriously. They had to be production cars. They couldn't be modified. And indeed, they had to carry le- weights that represented the equivalent of four people being on board. They had to be touring cars. They couldn't be two-seaters. They had to be road cars that had just been taken out of the showroom and taken to the race. And what better idea? It's a fantastic idea for uh, for proving and improving road cars. And of course, you know, it it was blindingly obvious to Bentley very quickly. This was a great a great selling point for his cars. If he could win these races, it would be a great a great feather in his cap. One one of the things I find interesting is that at one point you had to put the top up on the car and race for a certain number of laps or what have you. And then you could put the top down. 
Yes. Uh, I mean, charming, really. But again, a really good idea because tops back then, these flappy canvas arrangements, you know, really, again, no good at speed. It made manufacturers think about how to design them really well. But also in Bentley's case, he thought about how they could be put up and down really quickly because he was all about saving seconds. So he devised a system where the driver could actually pull the hood up without even getting out of the car. Wonderful. Yeah, really smart. And there are no pits. The road course is terrible. It's rutted. Farm animals, livestock would get in the way. Um, There's all sorts of hazards along the course. Absolutely. And also the road surface would deteriorate dramatically through the race. So by the end, it was a bit like driving. You know that feeling of driving through slushy snow after the snow's been around a while, but it hasn't been cleared? That's the only way I can I, I could describe it. It was just terrible. Yeah, it was a, essentially a McAdam road, right? Which is uh... yeah, only in part. I mean, it, 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 some of it, and, and it'd been so much, so much repairing had gone on, and they had tried putting some kind of tar down, but that usually created its own problems. Like it, 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 it melted in the heat if it was really hot, and then gave off poisonous fumes. Uh, it, the whole story of the development of the road network is a is a is a whole other book. It, really, it really is. That's all for part one of my interview with Peter Grimsdale. I'll see you back here for part two this Friday. That's March 10th. Please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage or just click the link in the show notes. Tell your friends, leave me five stars and a review on Apple Podcasts, and I will be back with more on Friday. So until then, cheers, everybody. I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.